Hey everybody, welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Jeff Linus. Dr. Linus is the Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Jeff is also a professor of psychiatry and neurology. Welcome back to the podcast, Jeff. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How are you, Kim? Thank you for having me back. Yeah, well, you know, we were talking about six or seven months ago, I think it was, on the podcast, and you were telling us all about your office and um, the great things you do. And then you, one of the things that we got to talk about faculty motivation, and we're talking about faculty development and how do we develop faculty in our world, and you mentioned self-determination theory. I had never heard of self-determination theory. Subsequently, you pointed me to an article, a peer-reviewed manuscript that you wrote about the theory. And by the way, folks out there in Faculty Factory land, on facultyfactory.org, we are all compiling a nice um, repository of faculty affairs and faculty development literature. And you will see Jeff Linus's paper there on self-determination theory. So Jeff, I was just hoping you could, in a little snippet format, talk about self-determination theory, review it for us, and tell us about the, those primary basic principles of it, and then how um, we as faculty members can apply this in our own career development and the career development of those whom we supervise. Sure. I'd be glad to. Uh, and I, I will say that I think that this self-determination theory is something that uh, certainly my colleagues and I that wrote the paper, we didn't invent this. What we tried to do was summarize what's really become a large body of work stretching back decades across hundreds of investigators and literally thousands of studies now related to different aspects of the theory. But what started out as this attempt by social scientists to kind of create a comprehensive theory of human motivation, which might sound sort of abstract to people who are not in that area, which includes me, it turns out to have all kinds of practical implications, I think, for us as faculty members and as faculty leaders. So how does it go? Well, the gist of it is that uh, we, we want to try to do as much as possible is engage our own and our colleagues what's called intrinsic motivation as distinguished from extrinsic motivation. And it turns out that there are three key things that as much as we can engage people's sense of, it engages their intrinsic motivation, which actually makes people more likely to want to do things and actually have more fun and be more productive at doing it, all of which we want, of course, for ourselves and for our colleagues. So the three basic principles are called, I'll take them each in turn, but sense of autonomy, sense of competence, and sense of relatedness. And so just to kind of take them one by one, sense of autonomy really gets to sense of choice. What it means is, you know, we all like to do things because we choose to do them. It doesn't necessarily mean autonomy, like I do this all by myself. We might choose to do it with other people, but we like to do things because we choose to do them. So it's that sense of choice that's what we mean by sense of autonomy sense of confidence is pretty simple and I think makes a lot of common sense that we all like to do things that we think we're good at and things that we don't feel so good at we get frustrated and we either try to master it in which case then we can feel good about it or we kind of give up and go on to something else that we think we can do well and the third thing sense of relatedness which basically means we like to do things that connect us to other people to larger ideas larger principles larger institutions or movements that we care about uh, and so again to the extent that anything we do engages our sense of choosing to do it, engages our sense of uh, that we're good at it, and engages a sense of being related to other people or to larger things, uh, we, we want to do more of it. Totally get it. It makes perfect sense. 
you know, I can't help but think as faculty in academic medicine, we have all those ridiculously frustrating modules online of, you know, regulatory and compliance things and all these IRB human subjects and safety. And I mean, it seems like every every other day at Hopkins, we're getting these threatening emails, you know, you must complete the following, you know, 52 hour module and do it by yesterday. And those things that are not yeah. our choice to do. So, you know, can you talk about some of the, you know, the, the head scratching that goes on of how do we motivate ourselves if we, if any of these elements are absent? It's not our choice. Um, maybe we don't care if we're competent at it because it's, you know, an obligation and there's certainly no relatedness or connectedness to it. You know, can you help us distinguish these opportunities that are more amenable maybe to these kinds of concepts? Sure. Uh, and, and of course, those of us who work in faculty affairs, we're often the authors of some of these messages that go out to people saying, you really have to do this. And exactly. so the question is, how do we, how do we engage people and kind of minimize the, minimize the negative side of it and try to engage people's intrinsic motivation as much as we can? So, uh, I have a recent example because we actually just sent out our annual communication to our faculty which does require them to fill out a disclosure of any of their outside financial interests and kind of answer a bunch of questions about those sorts of things, which I'm sure most of us have to do at most of our institutions across the continent. Um, And so this is something that clearly is required, right? It's not optional. I mean, in principle, fostering a sense of autonomy means giving people a choice. We can't give them a choice not to do this. But what we can do that fosters that sense of choice is help explain the rationale for it so that hopefully what they wind up realizing is, well, you know what, I might not have chosen to do this on my own, but given all that, I will, you know, of course, I need to do this. I want to do this. And so they can actually make the decision to do it, uh, even though it is required. And so for something like conflict of interest, we do that by kind of reminding people of values, uh, including protecting the public's perception of us, both of our science and of our clinical care uh, and our educational activities, too. And we all care about that. We care about our reputation. We don't want to actually be tainted by things that we shouldn't be tainted by. And we don't want the public to think we're tainted, even if we're not. And by kind of reminding people about that, um, and then there's the other side of it, which I guess is a little bit more of a stick, but it is also that in order to be compliant with a whole lot of uh, things that are way beyond our university, um, which is good for us, and it doesn't help any of us if our institution falls out of compliance with these things. So we kind of remind people briefly about these things that so people can kind of say, oh, yeah, you know, it's a pain in the neck, but you know what, I really should, I really need to do this, you know, in the sense of engaging with it. Yeah, so that's that's where I can't, so now I get it. That's the choice of saying, so it's kind of like I don't really, really I'm obligated to do this. I, uh, it's not a choice per se, but now I'm perhaps choosing to do it now versus being hit over the head with these reminders that get in more and more threatening. So as a recipient of these kinds of, um, you know, compliance things in this instance, uh, by invoking a proper messaging, that's what I heard from you saying, that's where uh, as the sender of these things and as those of us who are faculty thinking about how we teach learners or how we engage with trainees and mentees and assistants and our research assistants in our labs or staff in our offices, is that that importance of communicating the why. You know, this is something, here we go again, I know nobody likes to do this, however, you know, we have to make sure that we do this and we all understand why we're obligated. You know, we're trying to make this as easy as possible. But that whole messaging versus simply something that would be just owners of here, this is do it, do it now. 
that's what I exactly. think is, is being mindful of involving and engaging the recipient to say, okay, yes, I choose to be a good citizen and I'm going, to, I'm with you on this. I will help us meet our deadline or whatever. So I like, and what I'm hearing you say is, emphasizing to me the importance of communication. That's right. The communication has to kind of frame it in these ways that reinforce intrinsic motivation as much as possible. And you kind of applied a whole bunch of other examples that come up all the time for us as faculty members. So, for example, if we're leading a course, let's say it's a required course for medical students, uh, the medical, you know, if it's a required course, the medical students didn't choose to take the course exactly. Uh, and they may not have chosen to learn the particular facts or reasoning skills or whatever other skills were we're trying to help teach them, but we can remind them that they did choose to go to medical school and they do want to become physicians, and we can remind them how this is going to fit into that picture so that they can say, you know what, I want to be a great physician, and so I need to learn this. And so in order in order to do that, I, I really, you know, I, I want to learn this so I can actually be the great physician I intended to sign up to be. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Now, competence. So the, second, the first autonomy or cho- choice, now competence, because early on you said, we want to be good at things. We, we take immense pride in doing things and doing them well and being known as the expert in something. And then you said, if we're not, we're just going to quit. So I'm thinking about pickleball. I love pickleball. I took it up and I'm, I was pretty good at it. And, but I was not as good as some of these young guys who I was learning with who were, you know, airbound and flying all around, you know, a la, you know, Kobe Bryant, you know, bless his heart. Um, so I, I quit. And I thought, well, I'm never going to be masterful and beat these young guys, so I'm going to quit until I move someplace where there are more, you know, a, a bigger group of people in my age category who aren't, you know, three feet in the air doing this. So how do we deal with the competence issue when we know perhaps we've chosen, you know, yes, Dr. Linus, I agree with you, I should know how to do ABC since I've chosen to be XYZ, however... I'm just not as good as my colleague in doing statistical analysis. Where is that? When does it come the decision point where, as a faculty member in this instance, I make the pivot to say, you know what? I can only take so many courses on structural equation analysis or multiple regression before I realize I don't like doing it. I'm not good at it. I'm just going to hire a statistician or I'm going to partner with a colleague who is good in this and we'll do a quid pro quo and I'll do the graphics and they'll do the where how hard do we try to be competent or how does that competence play in this well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad you changed the, the uh, examples to something related to statistical collaboration, because if you're going to keep it on pickleball, it would be a very brief snippet. What I know about pickleball would not go on for very long here. Um, I, I think you're asking really important questions. Uh, you know, and it's not that we all need to be the world's expert, the equivalent of a chess grandmaster and whatever it is we do, but we need to feel like we know what we're doing enough to then be able to kind of get the results we're trying to get. So when it comes to statistical collaboration, you know, I've done this myself, and I think it's true for most of my colleagues. I never intended to become an expert at statistics all by myself. What I needed to become was somebody who felt competent and felt comfortable collaborating with my social science colleagues in biostatistics or in other social sciences. So I knew what questions to ask. I knew how to have a conversation with them. I knew what I, I could sort of anticipate what kinds of things they would want to know. Um, and actually, those collaborations wound up improving the science and were really kind of fun to boot on a personal level, which I think gets to the related the third competency. Um, and so uh, so I felt like I was a competent collaborator. 
rather than a you know an expert statistician. And I think that comes up in all kinds of ways, small and, and large, you know, even with the conflict of interest, financial interest survey I just mentioned, just a, it's a small detail, but these are the kinds of things that matter. Our survey is administered from a web-based platform that's kind of behind our medical center's firewall. So for people who are on site, any computer they use that's on the network, it's right there. They can just go right into the survey and log in and they're, and they're there. But of course, lots of our faculty are now offsite and lots of them are off the network. And so uh, in the early runnings in past years, although we said somewhere in the instructions, if you're not in the network, you need to VPN into the network. Um, but it was kind of buried in there and an awful lot of people tried to log on. The system would simply not log on and they weren't sure why and they got frustrated and they would kind of give up or they'd send kind of a tuperative email saying your system doesn't work, your web page is down or whatever. And we kind of learned from that that what we needed to do to give them the tools they needed it to feel, you know, minimally sort of confident, at least in accessing the survey, is make it really, really clear. You know, if you are not at URMC, you need to do the following or it won't work. I and mean, being that as, as clear as we could about that to minimize that sense of frustration and kind of not feeling confident about what they were doing. Wow, that is such a perfect example. That's so... And it's a small thing, right? But it made a big difference, I think. Well, again, that's, that's, that's perfect because it also goes back to your messaging of trying to anticipate that the human experience or the end user of something. And it's, and it's making me yes. reflect back on a snippet interview I just did with Dr. Linda Dillon-Jones, my dear friend and colleague here at Hopkins. She's a senior faculty development consultant. And we were just talking about uh, difficult conversations or five key conversations. And one had to do with feedback. It's about supervising people. And it was along these same lines of competence. Like in her, basically the, uh, one of the message, very important messages was you don't, nobody wants to feel dumb and nobody wants to feel, nobody gets into a job and purposely wants to mess up or, or, you right. know, or cause trouble. But sometimes some new hires or staff or, you know, fill in the blank, anybody, when we don't give them enough messaging or proper communication or guidance or feedback, it's almost like they may feel like they're, we're sitting back with our arms crossed waiting for them to mess up. And so it, mm-hmm. that, that fear of, yeah, I'm not competent at this because you're really not helping me out. In fact, you're almost putting a lot of roadblocks and barriers up there and waiting to say, aha, you're incompetent. You're not good at that. And so, the, the example. And once they have that experience, you're, you're behind the eight ball with them already. Exactly, exactly. But what you just said, that perfect example of something that is so, it's not that malicious of like telling somebody to do a job and not giving them the tools, but essentially it is. You're telling, you're giving mm-hmm. them a job. It may not be a surgical procedure or a data analytic um, procedure, but it's, fill out this form or do this task, but we're not going to give you any tools or resources. It's going to be clumsy and clunky and it's not going to work right. And there's going to be all these lags and we are going to really just test your patience and frustrate you to no end. That's, you know, completely uh, ridiculous. So, I love that. I think idea. a big part of a big part of helping people feel competent is by giving them the tools that they need to, you know, to meet whatever it is they need to do, and setting kind of what what uh, the folks in self determination theory refer to as the optimal level of challenge. So if you're teaching folks, you don't want to set the bar so low that it's you know there's no challenge, there's nothing new because otherwise why should they waste time you know in your course or in your lecture? But but you want to put it at a level where people can understand it, can do something with it, uh, and if they don't know what to do with it yet. Yeah, then you got to give them the tools to make it as straightforward as possible for them to learn how to do it. Yeah, 
And after all, with faculty development, you know, yeah, you, you don't we want people to feel competent in not even faculty development, but I mean, just getting faculty newly coming to our institutions in general. Ideally, they're coming, we hire them to come and do their patient care or research or teaching with a, you know, anticipated level of competence, but then so many times we do throw in roadblocks and barriers and there are a lot of institutional snafus and and it really can threaten that sense of competence for the job that they have spent years training to do and then let let alone add on some other things. Okay, now now you have to learn how to supervise people and be a good mentor and do all these other things when the foundation of, my gosh, you hired me to do this very one thing and I'm already having a hard time doing it because you've not provided me with adequate resources and tools. And so your, your, your whole structure is resting on some flimsy assumptions that we think will just do your job. Well, my gosh, you, you can't, we can't expect faculty to do things that are extra career development things when their primary focus or function is really challenged by day-to-day stressors. I guess I'm kind of going a little that's bit right, That's right. That's right. No, I think that's exactly right. Particularly when it comes to regulatory things or things that are, uh, you know, there, it's primarily make it as straightforward as possible for people to do it and be done with it and move on to the next thing. But for most faculty development things where you're really trying to help people, I mean, ideally, people are walking into a faculty development session wanting to change, right? Wanting to leave the session or whatever it is somehow different and better than when they walked in. But of course, you know, people are busy and they may not have the energy to do that. And I think that's kind of the almost like the yin yang between the autonomy and choice and the competence thing. You want to create create a, a little bit of a sense of people in a faculty development session, like you know, you really want to, you really should be better at this, mm-hmm. and yet give them the tools to do it so they don't feel incompetent to get frustrated trying to get better at it. Yeah, exactly. And then that third thing. Um, so we have autonomy, competence, and connectedness. Talk to us a little bit more, a little bit more about relations and relatedness and community and and how a yeah. faculty member listening can use that personally and in community with others. Sometimes this this sense of relatedness also gets described as sense of purpose, and so it really can be about being connected to a person or to a group of people. And or it can be connected to a larger sense of purpose for the field or for the discipline or for the profession or for the school or whatever organization that you're, you know, people are working in. So, um, you know, when it comes to financial interests on a survey, uh, the larger purpose is that we, you know, the fields that we work in and as clinicians and scientists, we want our fields to be trusted. And so kind of re- engaging people's sense of that can be pretty important um, for people in health professions or science education. They want to come out of this as, you know, physicians or nurses or psychologists or social scientists or whatever it is they're training to become. Uh, and we want to try to engage their sense of the larger purpose of the field. At the same time, there's also the connectedness to other people, which may mean us as their teacher or as their as their course leader or as their dean or whatever our administrative roles are. It may be connectedness to their classmates or their uh, other faculty members in the same area. Uh, and anything and everything we can do to foster that, uh, you know, lots of us on our home pages for our faculty development or faculty affairs offices, we have a little bit about ourselves or the people in the office or who we, you know, some section on who we are and what we do written in what's hopefully an approachable kind of style that makes people feel even just a little bit of connected to us, which then makes them more likely to want to engage with whatever it is we're engaging with them about. 
I certainly, as an extrovert, I go right to the the belonging, connectedness, relatedness with other people. But you're right, Mm -hmm. connecting with the value, the mission, and because Tate Shanafelt, you know, formerly of Mayo, now he's at Stanford, the the burnout guru, Mm -hmm. talked about that. You know, that if we don't feel connected to, you know, the values of our mission or doing what we want, we have a higher likelihood of stress and burnout, and and that. Well, I guess the, the disconnect between a lot of values misalignment. So that's an important reminder to me to think about relatedness or connectedness. If you maybe would be an introvert and think, well, I don't want to be around a lot of people. And that's not my preference or I don't get my energy that way. No, the, the bigger picture is no. Are you connected to the purpose of your institution or your division mission and, and the connection to your patients or with this research question? So... I like that you reminded me about that connectedness can be on a micro or a macro level. Those common goals and principles count just as well. I think that's a real big part of what distinguishes most uh, schools of medicine and most other health profession schools as well from perhaps departments in other kinds of uh, other parts of our academic institutions. We usually are bonded together by some common sense of, you know, goals, whether it be caring for patients with the illnesses in our field or advancing a particular type of science that our department or center focuses on. I mean, there is a sense of common mission or there should be. Uh, and I think that there really is in most of our schools and most of our departments. And we want to try to foster that. I also think you're right to make the analogy to to burnout and wellness because uh, a lot of what intrinsic motivation is the the science of that is about is that to the extent that we foster people's sense of relatedness and competence and autonomy, uh, the happier they are as well as more productive. And the flip side of that is the less burned out they are. I love this, Jeff. Thank you so much for reviewing this. And folks out there, I hope you've um, appreciated Dr. Jeff Linus talking to us about self-determination theory. And I I see definite application for how we as faculty members ourselves can um, use this and how we can then put it outward and think about how we can, you know, use this self-determination theory in our classrooms, how we teach and interact with learners or patients or in our labs in the staff, in the clinics, um, lots of application to understanding how people are motivated, intrinsic motivation, autonomy, competence, relatedness, or connectedness. Anything else, Jeff, you want to share with us? I think that pretty much summarizes it. All right. Well, that was cool. Again, Dr. Jeff Linus, he's a Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at University of Rochester Medical Center, and you can find his information on facultyfactory.org. And if you're interested in self-determination theory and want to learn more about it, go to the website selfdeterminationtheory.org. It's all one word, no hyphens, nothing. Selfdeterminationtheory.org. And there's lots to be learned there. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.